0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to My social life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. And before we get into today's conversation with Zach Honimer, there's a couple things that we need to go over first. Number one, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review. The more positive ratings and reviews you get, the more it helps people find the show and it really helps to grow the community that we're developing here. And if you're one of those people that have recently found the podcast, welcome. I'm very excited to have you here. Make sure you subscribe and stay tuned for future episodes. I put up brand new interviews every single Monday and takeaways episodes every single Thursday. And one other thing, if you enjoy today's podcast, make sure to share it to your Instagram story, tag myself at the Jacob Kelly and Zach at Zach dot the creator, and I'll feature you on my account and send you a message as well. And now without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Zach Honover. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to My Social Life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, this podcast is powered by TrueFan. And today we're joined by Zach Hanavar. And Zach is the owner of One Day Entertainment, a talent management company that represents Yes Theory, Matt Como, and Brandon Burnett. Despite his success, he's always the student and never the master. Prior to being manager, he was one of the first 100 employees at Shopify and helped them build out their streetwear and men's fashions division. He had it real nice, but decided to take the plunge and move from Toronto to Malibu to pursue his entrepreneurial dreams. And I'm very excited to have him here on the podcast today. Zach, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, man. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. Where I want to start, I want to go all the way back, way back to the beginning And so you, like, originally you moved from Iran to Canada when you were four, correct?
1: That's correct. When I was four, my mother and my sister and I moved from Iran um, as refugees, actually, to Vancouver, Canada.
0: Okay. And I listened, like, in, in preparation for this podcast, I listened to a bunch of old interviews you've done, read any articles, and you described your time once you moved to Canada, you had to grow up pretty quickly. Like when you were four years old, your mom used to leave you at home by yourself just because of the logistics of how things work. So she had to go to work. It's like, how did that kind of allow you to grow up and mature quicker than everyone else around you at your age?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting. My mom is very like tough love, very much like would talk to us when we were kids as if we were adults. She always wanted to instill independence and my sister and I, so that we never relied on anyone or, or we grew up really quickly, she she was kind of like she would hold a baby and talk to it like it was an adult rather than like, you know, a lot of people hold babies and are like, gaga. she was like, no, no I'm going to talk to you like an adult so that you grow up and get it because uh, that's what you should expect from this world. And so it kind of raised both my sister and I really quickly to to think like adults and be kind of older than our age. And just because of the financial situation we were in when I, when we got to Canada, um, we couldn't afford daycare. We couldn't afford a babysitter. Um, every babysitter that I stayed at was kind of crappy because they were doing it for free and they probably had dirty places and we didn't grow up in the best of areas when I, when we moved to Canada for a large part of it, we were in like government housing. Um, and those times were really hard. So my mom at one point was just like, you can take care of yourself. You can be at home. So. I was just staying at home on, on weekends while she was out working and that got me to, you know, learn how to make my own breakfast, learn how to like entertain myself and and uh, yeah, not go outside and not answer the door when I don't know who's knocking at it. And So that was a, a very interesting experience that got me to kind of become a lot more independent than the kids around me at that age. And that kind of was a common theme in my life. You know, as soon as I was in grade, six, my mom was like, you need to go get a job. Whereas a lot of people don't start until they're like 14, 15, 16. I was starting at like 12. My mom being like, you got to go get a job. You got to go learn how to work. You got to go know the value of money. Um, And those are things that now I look around and some of my friends can't even do their own laundry sometimes or like haven't ever done some of the things that I was, I've been doing for a very long time independently. They're now just starting to maybe pick those things up as they've become an adult after, you know, 18, 20, 25.
0: So you said your mom was telling you to get a job by the time you were 12. And it was around that time that where I don't think you got a job right away, you ended up selling chocolate bars out of your backpack at school, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I was uh, at the time really loved uh, sneakers, like basketball sneakers and basketball cards. And uh, I didn't have any money. So I realized that like if I could just get my mom to, when she was at Costco, buy a bulk box of chocolate bars. Um, the school that I went to had a lot of uh, like kids that were kids of immigrants, so uh, a lot of people that were Indian, Pakistani, Middle Eastern, and a lot of these kids would get sent to school with lunches that were like really ethnic, and I related to them because I was re- I got those lunches and I was really embarrassed about them. Because sometimes like, you microwave them and they smell, and like all the white kids would make fun of you. And, uh, I knew that they would rather be eating something else. So I was, I would go to them and I'd sell them chocolate bars and be like, well, I'll sell you this chocolate bar a buck. Or I don't remember exactly what I was pricing them at, but I would do that. Sometimes I would buy, I would do the same thing with Lunchables. We'd go out, get Lunchables and I'd come bring them to school as my lunch. And then I'd sell them to kids who I knew were embarrassed at the lunches they got. I knew that they'd be willing to pay to eat Lunchables. Um, So then I'd, I'd sell those.
0: That's awesome. So was this this in theory, then that was like your first kind of introduction into entrepreneurship then?
1: That was my first ever introduction to entrepreneurship, yeah.
0: And so like, was it from that, was it that early on where maybe it was through the experience of selling chocolate bars and lunchables at school? Was that when the entrepreneurial bug kind of bit you when you knew that when you grew up, you wanted to be your own boss and have your own business? Or did that come later on?
1: That was definitely when I realized I was good at it. I realized that like when I'm talking to people and I want them to, I want to try to sell them something. I have a knack for getting them to like, uh, understand the viewpoints that I'm trying to portray to them. And so I knew I had a knack for it at that time. And I think it just started to snowball from there. I think one of the other big things was I always wanted, I always had big aspirations and money was a very, it was a thing that I thought about a lot. It was a thing that my mom talked to me a lot about a lot because we grew up poor. And it was something that was like deemed as this important thing. And so I remember growing up, my mindset was like, okay, well, what has an, uh, uh no ceiling in terms of how much money can be made and entrepreneurship was that thing. I realized that like, Oh, a doctor has a ceiling. An engineer has a ceiling, a lawyer, to some degree, all these things have some sort of ceiling. Um, or like average, a uh, like, uh, salary or, or compensation. But when I r- realized the richest people of in the world, uh, are entrepreneurs that got my excitement and curiosity spiked towards like, what does that really mean? And what is an entrepreneur?
0: Mm-hmm. So through high school, did you do anything to actively pursue entrepreneurship? I couldn't find too much in terms of any entrepreneurial ventures in high school or anything like that.
1: Uh, no, I mean in in high school I was kind of a crappy kid. I hung out with the wrong crowd. All I cared about was sports and basketball. I was working a lot because my mom would force me to work. Um, I bounced around from probably I would say ten to fifteen jobs in throughout high school because I kept getting fired. I wouldn't show up. I'd show up late. I would like goof off. I would I wouldn't care. Um, and the only thing that I did uh entrepreneurially in school with, at some for a, a portion of like about a year i was i was selling weed so that was probably the closest i got to to entrepreneurship but that actually did teach me a lot too because i mean as as, as much as i look back at that point in my life now and go like oh crap that was i shouldn't have done that and i have very i have like a, a sense of guilt that i carry around um i also recognize that it did teach me a lot about sales and entrepreneurship
0: mm-hmm. And so then ultimately, I do want to get into college and what you do, because I know you had some, some impressive entrepreneurial ventures while you were going to college, but before then, I want to talk about in 2014, you posted a Women a woman Crush Wednesday post of Nike Heaton and somehow managed to meet her a week later. I'm just curious <laughs> how you managed to pull that off.
1: That's funny. Uh, yeah, Nikki Heaton was, uh, I found out about her music and then thought she was just attractive and, and wanted to uh, meet her, then coincidentally... She was coming to Toronto for, I believe it was all-star weekend for NBA all-star weekend. And uh, a friend of mine was just promoting the bar that she was actually supposed to come be like the host at. Um, So I ended up there and then my friend just brought me on stage and was like, oh, I can introduce you to her because I'm promoting tonight and got to meet her, told her that I like her music. And and that was pretty much it.
0: That's cool. I was just curious because I know many people that have posted a Women Crush Wednesday photo that have never gone on to meet them, especially in such a a short time frame. So, that question is kind of random, but I was just genuinely curious. But, kind of getting back on track to college here, ultimately, did you go to school for something entrepreneurial related or did you go for something else?
1: I went for business. Um, So, that was pretty much the only thing when I was going to university. I had actually dropped all my sciences uh, in the 10th grade in my uh, sophomore year of high school because I could. Um, and that because I didn't take any sciences for the later portion of high school, I couldn't get into anything else in terms of like sciences or engineering because you need your your later on in high school credits for sciences. But business was what fascinated me. I knew that I was passionate about business. Um, I knew that I wanted to be a businessman. For the larger portion of the late, in, in actually late high school, I came across the thought that I wanted to wear a suit every single day. I realized that when I wore a suit when I was in high school, when I would go out, people treated me with a sense of like respect that they never did when I dressed like a hoodlum. Um, and so I re- that was like, oh wow, I want to be a businessman. I want to wear a suit every day. I want to drive around in, you know, uh, like a Rolls Royce or a Benz. That was kind of my mindset as a 17 year old.
0: That's super interesting, especially because we'll talk about it in a bit, but. Charlie Jabley did a very similar thing when he was growing up. So I think that is super interesting, but with wanting to pursue that and pursue business, I know like I heard somewhere, read somewhere that when you got to college, you you knew you wanted to start a business, but you might not have necessarily know what it was at that time. And I'm, I'm transitioning to A here, but before you kind of stumbled on upon and did EZA, what were, what were some of the business ideas you had prior to that?
1: Did you know that was one of the first ones? Um... I, I like you said I I was going around university telling people I wanted to be an entrepreneur uh when people asked me like what's your big dream or whatever and uh I went to university in a town called Kitchener Waterloo and it's actually known for being the tech capital of Canada as as you probably know um and it, you know it's where Blackberry started it's where Kick started it's where you know Google has their Canadian headquarters it's where Shopify has a very big presence now And so when I would tell people I want to be an entrepreneur, in that time, everyone's mind went to like, oh, so you want to like start an app. You want to start a tech company. And I didn't know. And they're like, okay, so what's your brilliant idea? And I didn't have an answer. So the road to EZA was actually me realizing like, if I sit around and wait for this brilliant aha eureka moment of like this million dollar idea, then when that idea approaches me, I won't be ready because I've actually... (laughs) I haven't learned anything about entrepreneurship in the meantime. Entrepreneurship is not about having a brilliant idea. It's about having the skills to execute a brilliant idea. Um, so that was what led me to Easy A. Easy a was an opportunity that I found, which wasn't a million dollar idea. It wasn't an earth shattering, brilliant concept, but it was something that I thought, A, could make money with little capital up front, um, and two, would teach me the skills of entrepreneurship.
0: Yeah. And so for, for anyone that doesn't know, can you kind of explain what EZA is and how the idea started? Because I think the story is fascinating as to how you kind of found that opportunity and put the business together.
1: For sure. So at my university, there was an organization called SOS, which was a tutoring company that was holding big lecture halls right before midterms and exams, um, where they would do like a crash course on the, on the class so that you could prepare for that midterm or that exam. And I was going to a lot of them and found a lot of value in them for the business courses that I was taking. And uh all the money that you you when you got into the room you would pay $20 at the door and that would be the cost of the lecture. I remember I went up to one of the the tutors at the end of the class and was like, "Hey, how much do you get paid to teach this 2-hour lecture crash course for this midterm?" And he was like, "I don't get paid anything. This is all volunteer because all the money goes to charity." And I was like, if I pay you to do this again, uh, will and I paid you like $60 an hour, would you do that? And he was like, yeah, of course. So I was like, okay, I know a ton of people that missed this class and would want, like miss this crash course and would do one if I did it next week. Why not just do it? And I'll just keep the 20 bucks that everyone pays at the door. So I booked out a class online on, on campus, got him to teach the same session, got probably 10, 20, 30 people to come to it and charge them all 10, 20 bucks. I think it was 10 or 20 bucks. I, want, I think I might've undershot SOS by being like, oh, it's not 20 bucks, it's 10 bucks to so come to mind. And um, then the Dean of Students called me into his office and was like, hey, I heard that you booked out a room on campus and we're charging students to come in. And I was like, yeah. He was like, you can't do that. You can't charge a, a student to get into a room on campus. Like that should be open for everyone. And I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like SOS is charging people $20 to get in. He's like, no, they're not charging. They're asking for donations. So that's a different thing. Whereas it was actually very shocking. I was like, wait, you're telling me people can go to those SOS lectures and not pay? And he was like, yeah. And that was very actually weird because the way that it was enforced was you have to give a $20 donation at the door to get into the session. Um, And so I was like, okay, well, maybe I can do something where I give a portion to charity and like keep some money for myself. And he was like, listen, what you should do is you should turn EZA into a, into a club on campus, not a business, we'll fund you a couple hundred bucks or a couple thousand bucks for your marketing, uh, expenses and for your tutor and stuff like that. And then all the money you get, will help pair you with like a charity and you can give all the money away. And I remember telling him with all due respect and as much as I care about giving money to a good cause, I'm really broke. I'm paying my own way through school. Like I didn't come to charity school. I came to business school. And this is really important for me to do, to be able to learn how I can start a business and make money. And so I said, if you can't let me do this on campus, then like, with all due respect, I'm going to go do it off campus. And he was like, well, I can't control what you do off campus. So best of luck. And so I went to the church across the street from my school and said, Hey, I have this idea. Do you have any classrooms in your basement that I can use? And they were like, absolutely. You can use these class or the classrooms in the basement. And I said, you know, can you guys charge me? Like, what do you guys think it's fair? And they said, actually, we can't can't actually enforce charging anyone because we're a church, but we're more than happy to take donations. And I said, cool, you guys can take 20% of of every dollar I make. And they were like, that would be phenomenal. So I started holding them in the basement of this church, started paying my tutors $60 an hour, and started charging uh, students $20 to come come in and, and participate. And I just started marketing it a little bit different than SOS, where SOS was having 200, 300, 400 kids in a lecture hall to get the crash course. I was saying we're capping our rooms at 50 plus all the tutors are providing like a a booklet of exercises and lessons that you don't get. So it was more, a little bit more hands-on, a little bit more, um, yeah, personalized for the people coming into the classes. And it was the exact same price. Um, So so that's kind of what I did for my second year of university.
0: That's awesome. And so did you just run that for your second year?
1: My second and third year, uh, towards the third year, towards the middle of the third year of university, a bunch of other tutoring companies started and I started running into a bunch of headaches that were making, was making it harder and harder to maintain. Like a bunch of my tutors started not being as good. Um, I had to like do a bunch of crisis control, all the learning that I was actually now in hindsight. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so glad that I ran into those brick walls, um, with EZA, but, um, it also just wasn't sparking my, the fun and passion in me anymore. And so I was like, okay, well, I learned what I learned and now I have to hang hang it up and go try something new. Mm-hmm.
0: And then the next thing that you did in terms of your entrepreneurial journey, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was when you so you needed a laptop to take a specific coding course, because I believe your laptop had broken. And in order yeah. to raise funds to purchase this laptop, you sold advertising space on the back of your laptop. So when you're going around campus and sitting in different places, you have these business logos that people are seeing which I think is just an ingenious idea. And if I'm not mistaken, you saw a similar idea or something like that in a documentary and that's what inspired you to do that?
1: Yeah, I was watching this documentary about uh young entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley one night on YouTube and there was this uh woman that had done it, uh this young lady that had done it in San Francisco with a bunch of startups because she would work in these like communal workspaces and she got the startups in Silicon Valley to buy and she did it through like selling really small space. So on her laptop she had like a hundred brands with tiny, tiny logos etched on her laptop. And so I was like, wow, if she can do that, I can do that. And so I contacted a I contacted a laser etching studio and said, Hey, if I if I was able to do this, could you laser etch these logos? And they said, Yeah. And I said, Well, if I laser etch your logo, will you do it for free? And they were like, Sure. Um, so then I started playing this game of chicken and the egg. I went to a bunch of newspapers in uh, my city and in the school and said, Hey, if I'm able to achieve this, will you write about it? And they were like, yeah, it's a really cool story. And then I started going to, uh, food places on campus and around campus property management companies on and around campus, told them about the idea and said, um, I have all these newspapers ready to write about me. And they're going to highlight and showcase the brands that support me. I'm trying to do this so that I can take this course. And I'm also, you know, maxed out on student loans. And there were a lot of companies that thought that was a really innovative and creative way to showcase their brand. And then to also be known as the brand that was supporting, you know, a student who was trying to be proactive and trying to be, trying, just trying to be successful and, you know, was struggling with funds. And so once I, I, at first I got a bunch of no's, but once I got one or two yeses, it snowballed from there. And once people saw other companies were uh, committed to it, then it became a lot easier.
0: And so once you finally got it etched, I'm curious, did people ever come up and ask you about the logos on the back of your laptop?
1: (laughs) They actually did, which is hilarious of like proof that it worked because people were like, why do you have a quick sandwiches logo on your laptop? And I was like, actually, quick sandwiches paid me like a couple thousand bucks or like a thousand bucks to put it on my laptop. Um, So yeah, that was, that was uh, a great conversation starter in my lecture halls or in on campus when I was just, you know, in a corner studying. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you still have that laptop? I
1: still do. Yeah. I still use it as my home laptop.
0: No way. That's awesome. Yeah. And so before we kind of transition out of, out of college here, I was curious, this is probably, this question might lead to nowhere, but I just had to ask. Mm -hmm. So after- after the laptop, I was curious, you built for your final project at Wilford Way, you built a website called Laclado, which is a site for people that love to travel where you can share cool spots on a map for other travelers to find. Was that just a project or were you ever kind of considering trying to make that an actual business?
1: I was actually very passively uh, involved in that. It was actually more of a friend's idea. And my involvement with it was just pretty much in, in helping him with Ideas around it, and then uh, trying to put a little bit of like the computer science stuff that I was learning from that class that I needed a laptop for to use. Um, So yeah, my involvement in that was a lot more passive. It wasn't something that like I was taking on head-on or I thought would be anything. Got you.
0: And so with kind of with your entrepreneurial background, by the time you graduated, you still ended up applying to different jobs, and I'm curious as to why you decided to apply to different jobs as opposed to taking the plunge right away.
1: I was maxed out on student loans. I was graduating, I mean, in Canada, I mean, you're Canadian, student loans aren't as high as in the States. We're not graduating usually with like $250,000 in debt, like people are in the States, but I graduated with like $50,000 in debt. And I knew that uh, I had to pay that off uh, before I could like go further in debt. Uh, So I took the job that would pay me the most amount of money. And I I actually uh, worked every single summer of university at a company called Sun Life Financial, which is like a Canadian finance insurance company. And they actually accepted me right out of university into a, a program called the Rotational Leadership Development Program, which was supposed to be for new grads that, uh, you know, they were going to accelerate into leadership positions in three years. So it was like you spend three years doing three different jobs. Every year you're rotated through a different part of the company. And the whole point was so that in, after three years you could get you know, hired us into a leadership position. Um, but I didn't last probably three months until I quit. And then that was when I went out and found Shopify.
0: Yeah. But, but, but so when you say they accepted you, it wasn't, it wasn't that simple though. Cause from my understanding, they only accept 12 people every year <laughs> and you made it to the final round of interviews, but then you ended up not getting it. Um, they offered you a regular job, not in that leadership program, you declined. And then when they asked you what you were going to do, you said you were going to go work for their competitor. And then you were going to call them in three years to show them where you are compared to the 12 people that they hired. And I haven't written that You made it your life's mission to outdo those 12 people. And as a result, they created a 13th position in that program specifically for you. And I just have to know where that idea to say that on the phone to them came from.
1: That's funny. I'm, I don't know where you got that, but that's 100% true. Um, that, uh, I mean, I, like I said, I had worked there every single summer. I was, you know, I had done a lot of jobs at this company already. So when I didn't make it into the program, it really hurt because I was like, I thought I had killed every interview. I thought I had killed the case study. I thought I had shown my best face forward and I had all these great recommendations. All my bosses were like, We'd lo- we love Zach and we think he'd be perfect for the program. So when they didn't accept me, my mindset was I'm gonna do everything in my power to make them regret this decision. And it came from a very um like I was very confident in myself and I knew what my value was and I knew that I had killed it in every other role that they had given me. So yeah, when they called me and they said, hey, we want to offer you this other job that's just a regular job at Sunlight, my mind went to there's no way I'm gonna be able to show up at that building, look at the person in the rotational leadership position. And then know every day and be reminded that I should have had that, but now I'm just going to this regular job, getting paid significantly less. And so, yeah, what I told them on the phone was, and they said, you know, do you have any questions or are you interested in getting connected with this recruitment person to go get like a regular position? And I said, no, 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 don't waste the time. Like, I'm not interested. I'm going to go look at something else. And they were like, are you sure? Like everyone else that we've talked to wants, still wants to get in, in some way, shape or form. Um, and I was like, no, with all due respect, like, uh, and they're like, Zach, don't make any harsh decisions right now. You know, take a couple of days and think about it and get backed up. And I was like, I'll take a couple of days and come back to you guys, but it won't be because I've changed my mind. It will be so I could learn what I did wrong because I want to learn and get feedback on what could I have done better in this process that would have gotten me this position. And then, uh, I did call them three days later and said, my thoughts haven't changed. I just want to know what I could have done better. And like a lot of companies, you know, the answer was very generic. It was like, uh, we just thought that, you know, the other people were a little bit better and there wasn't anything you did wrong or could have done better. It just, we didn't feel like it was a fit. And I said, okay, well, and I was like, well, I'm still not interested, but thanks for the feedback and like, have a great day. And like, I went to go hang up and the recruitment person was like, had known me for three years of working there and said, well, Zach, what are you going to go do now? Like, I do care about you. Like, what are you going to go do now? And I said, I'm going to go, <laughs> yeah, to go find a job at your competitor and I'll email you in three years and we'll see where, what I've done for them and how impactful I've been in their business. And I'll come back to you on, and and that will be my life mission. Like, I'm going to prove to you that you shouldn't have slept on. Um, and on the phone, at first, I remember when I said that, I was like, Zach, you're such an arrogant piece of shit. Who do you think you are to say this to them? And his response was actually very different. His response was, wow. I've really liked you for the past three years, but I don't think I've ever respected you as much as I do right now. And I was like, well, I appreciate that. Like, and he was like, I have some friends at that competitor, at that pe- competitive company. I'll put you in touch with them and all the best, Zach. If I can ever be helpful, like, let me know. And I was like, cool, man. Thanks a lot. And then he called me about two weeks later and he goes, I told the head of the program what your response was. I have her on the phone here. And she wants to talk to you. And I was like, shit, I'm in trouble. And she got on the phone and she's like, you know, he told me how you handled it. He told me what your response was. We've never opened up a thirteenth spot in this program, but we want to open it up to you. Um, and yeah, that was amazing. It kind of like showed me for the first time in my life, like when you value yourself and when you value what you add and you're confident in, in your skill set and your your value, then other people will notice it after. But if you don't notice it first, then you don't give anyone a reason to notice it for you.
0: And so with them creating that 13th position, ultimately, like you said, you ended up hating the position. Was it hard for you then to hand in your notice that you were leaving that job after they created this special 13th position for you? Obviously, if you hate a job, you shouldn't stay there. But for just personally, like, was that hard for you to do that despite everything that they'd done to create that 13th position?
1: Not at all. To be honest, I was, I was like spending my time towards the end of being there trying to figure out there has to be a better way like this can't be life I can't be at this company and experiencing this this can't be what the real world is like uh because I graduated thinking to myself like I'm gonna have all this impact I'm gonna have all this change and I entered a finance company that was like giving me mind-numbing work and every time I tried to go above and beyond and do um like I actually haven't told this story on a podcast before but one of the things that really frustrated me at this finance company was I started to get really into like uh, process uh, optimization and I started to realize that like our, in our department was not operating efficiently. Like there were a lot of redundancies, there were a lot of bottlenecks and I started realizing like, Oh, if I map out the structure of the processes of this department, there's a lot of things that are redundant and broken. And there was a, an organization that was going around that uh, within the organization that was like optimizing different departments. And so I got in contact with contact with them. I don't remember what their name was, but it was something around like efficiencies or optimization. I went to them and I was like, help me understand what you guys do. And I want to do that within my department. Now, once people in my department heard that I was doing that, I started to get a lot of backlash. People who were literally sitting me down being like, Zach, if you do this, people are going to lose their jobs because there's, there are people here that are. Uh, you know, if you do this and they're going to realize like, oh, that person's job is redundant. Let's get rid of them. Let's lower headcount because if we make the system more efficient, then, you know, we don't need as many people to do what we're doing right now. And I remember being like, I don't, I don't get it. Like if I'm making the business more efficient and I'm allowing us to run with more headcount and there's people right now that are just twiddling their thumbs and getting paid, like we're running a business. This isn't a club. So, <laughs> I ended up being like, with all due respect, like, I just don't understand. Like, I I know it's sad for someone to lose their job, but hopefully they can just go do something where their time is actually spent working and adding value. And so that just drove me crazy. I was like, we're literally here, like sucking the company's money. People hate it. They're here miserable from nine to five, Monday to Friday. The talk around the office was like, oh my God, happy Friday, everyone. Like, can't wait till the weekend. Oh my God, I hate my life. I hate my job. And I was like, this can't be the life that I'm entering. This can't be the type of environment that I'm in. Everyone I was talking to was like, I've been here for 20 years. I've been here for 25 years. I've been here for 30 years. And I was like, I don't want to be that. I can't see myself as that. So I was brainstorming actively. How do I get out of this? Um, And I still have a piece of paper that, and this is like an extreme, but like I was literally treating this like it was soul sucking. I was going home from work thinking I was going to work on my entrepreneurial projects and starting to see the motivation die within me because this place was sucking the energy out of me. And so I started writing and brainstorming, like how to get out of here. And I remember writing, uh, I have a piece of paper that I have in a book that I keep called, it was like my ticket out of the trap. I called this place the trap. I called like this finance company that you get into and you feel like, you know, it's still sucking you data entry and it's not going to be conducive to your learning. I called that the trap. And so, um, that was kind of my process into finding Shopify I was really trying to be like, I got to get out of here and by any means necessary before I, it's too late. And before I get sucked into becoming a lifer and I'm here for 25 years, because I imagine everyone that was there for 25 years, you know, th- th- that time just starts to slowly tick by and you don't realize it. And then you're there and it's, you're comfortable and you're looking for the next promotion or the next raise. And I realize like, if I stay here for too long, I'm going to end up like that and i got to get out asap. <laughs> so i saw i felt no ways and i did once i did tell them like i'm leaving they said well like you work so hard to get into here and we opened up the 13th spot for you and i was like listen like even in my experiences in these 3 months like it's been terrible and i gave them my honest feedback and i said like it's nothing against you guys too i found a really good opportunity and all the best. i say one thing that i remember about those times a lot of people told me like hey this this company stuck its neck out for you it it opened up a 13th spot for you Like the least you could do is give it, give it a year or give it two years or like see it through the rotational leadership program. And I was like, that's a lot to ask of someone. Two years of my life as a 23 year old is some of my best years to experiment and learn. This company would drop me at the, at the, at the, or like would, would, uh, would fire me or or lay me off at the drop of a hat if it needed to for business purposes. This company does not give a shit about me. Um, so for me to put aside my life to appease to this ginormous publicly traded company is ridiculous. And I think a lot of people treat their, treat companies like they owe something to them. But I think at the end of the day, like your relationship with the company is a two-way street. It needs to provide you value and you need to provide it value. So you need to, at some point in your life, put yourself before the company that you work for in my eyes all the time, because the company would get rid of you if the, if it needed to, just like we see when people get laid off, when coronavirus happens or when anything happens, you are dispensable at all times. So you need to make sure that the company you work for in your mind is also dispensable to you at all times when it makes sense for you and your life. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, that's an important thing I think people need to remember. Because to your point, I think people do put themselves behind the, value, the needs of the company. They put the company above their own needs at times. So I think that's an important thing yeah. for people to hear. and. And when you did end up leaving, so this is going to be a bit of a two-prong question. So you said you had another opportunity and that opportunity was Shopify. Mm-hmm. And where that opportunity came up was, correct me if I'm wrong, but you went to an entrepreneurship seminar and Shopify had a workshop and you went there and you did a pitch on stage that ultimately led to you meeting someone at Shopify that led to you getting an interview and ultimately your job there. And so the two-prong question is, what did you do on stage during that pitch at the entrepreneurship seminar? And two, why did you put such a high value on sales when leaving Sun Life?
1: Great question. Um, the, I'll start with the second one. The reason I put such a high emphasis on sales was I thought to myself when I was unhappy at, at, at Sun Life. I thought to myself, what is the number? One, I know I want to be an entrepreneur, right? So, what is the number one skill that an entrepreneur needs? And I I thought that, that the answer to that was sales. If no matter what no matter what idea I have, I'm going to have to sell it. I'm going to have to sell it to the employees that I hire. I'm going to have to sell it to the investors that I try to bring on all of that is sales. And I realized like I haven't developed that skill well enough yet. So I said, I'm going to go get a sales job. Um, And then when I got to that event, the entrepreneurship event, um, it was literally the day after I made a decision in my mind. I said, enough is enough. I'm going to quit Sun life and I'm going to go get a job in sales. And I prefer for that to be at a startup so that I can also get startup experience. That was that night I went on my computer I looked up entrepreneurship events. I found one the next day and went to that the next day. And that was where Shopify had a a workshop. I went on stage and you were supposed to do a pitch in the form of a story. And I did my pitch on how we should use our phones less in the company of our parents. Because once you leave home, you only have about 10 to 20% of your time left with them since you spend about 80% of your time with your parents while you still live with them. And I said, you know, next time you're with your parents, put your phone away and focus on that relationship when you're at an event like this, put your phone away and focus on that relationship that you can build with the peers around you. Um, And uh, yeah, the recruitment person came to me after and was like, that was really great. Do you work in sales? And I was like, no, I don't. I I would love to. I work in this finance company and I hate my life. (laughs) Literally, that was was the the words I used. I said, no, I don't. I would love to. I work at a finance company and I hate my life. And he goes, we should chat. And, you know, three weeks later, I was Starting at Shopify.
0: that's awesome so you you were ultimately like one of the first 100 employees at shopify which is crazy now when you put into context just how big that company is but i just wanted to be curious just from your full-time at shopify what are some of the biggest things you learned like clearly you would have learned sales and stuff but what are some of your biggest takeaways working at shopify
1: Whew, a lot of big takeaways um first the the way that like I was brought on to Shopify. Like when I interviewed, this is actually hilarious. When I interviewed, I had to interview right after I left my finance job. And I had to leave my finance job, which I wore a suit to, change into normal clothes, and then go interview at Shopify. And and then when I showed up with my resume, the recruiter was like, we don't do that here. And I don't give a shit what's on your resume. And then he asked me, what did you want to be when you were a kid? And so, like, what I learned was, oh, this is the way that companies should operate. I also told that guy at Shopify on the first interview, I said, I was a terrible kid in high school. I worked at McDonald's. I worked at Wendy's. I worked at this grocery store. I worked at this place. And I got fired from all of it. And he went, why? And I was like, because all I cared about was sports. I just wanted to play sports. I wanted to focus on basketball. I I would miss coming into a shift because I stayed late at practice. And when I ended up getting hired, I remember leaving that being like, why did I tell this guy that I got fired from every job I ever had? I and mean, there's no way he's going to call me back. And when I ended up getting the job, I remember going to him and I was like, Jamie, why did you hire me when I told you I got fired from every job I had in high school? And he goes, because you were self-aware about why it happened. And you realized in hindsight what the reasoning was. And you now understand that I felt self-awareness in you. So I wanted to hire you because I thought you were self-aware. And I realized, wow, how mature of a company and of a person and a recruitment team to not judge me off my past, but judge me off my awareness of myself and my desires and my incentives um, to now realize like, oh, he's incentivized to come here and he's incentivized to kill it here. Um, And so those are the things that within Shopify that like made me realize what i wanted to do within my own company i wanted to treat people like that i want now when i interview people to join one day entertainment my question to them is like what do you want to do in your life and how can i help you get there this isn't a company that i wanted to be like sun life where you're in here and i'm i'm you know pimping you out and making you work super long hours so that we can increase our bottom line i want you to leave here and stay like i do with shopify that one day entertainment helped you get to where you want to get to in your life Mm -hmm.
0: And there's one specific story about your time at Shopify that I want to ask. I was wondering if you give a little more context. And it's jumping a little bit ahead in your timeline here. This is where you'd met the guys from Yes Theory already. But you were on your way to a meeting, I believe with Matt from Yes Theory in the car. <laughs> and you were on the phone with Steve and pitching them. And apparently you were just being absolutely ruthless on that call. And I was wondering if you could kind of give me a little insight into what that conversation looked like on the phone.
1: Wow, you've done your homework. I love it. Um, yes, <laughs> I was. I was the person that signed Steve Madden on to Shopify, which was one of the biggest accounts that Shopify had gotten at the time, probably still one of the biggest accounts Shopify has. Um, and that was a very, very long process for me. Um, and yeah, I was on the phone with their president uh, at the time. I don't know if he's still the president there, but uh, I was on the phone with him and he, he had called me while my phone was attached to the car and that me and Matt were driving somewhere in. And uh, I told Matt, like, you know, this has to be private, like, just be quiet, but I got to take this call. It's very important. And we were negotiating on money. Um, I wanted to, it was like a strictly financial negotiation. And I was just like really stern. I was really firm with the price that we were asking for. And I kind of called his bluff on a lot of the stuff he was saying. I like backing out of the deal and yada yada I knew that they needed Shopify and I knew that they were in I knew that he was probably just trying to be aggressive so he could get the best price but I I stayed firm I stayed uh you know with the price that we were charging and we got off the phone and Matt was like dude that was the president of Steve (laughs) and uh I was like yeah and to me it was not it was nothing but to Matt he was like I can't believe a 25 year old or 24 year old. I don't remember. I think I was 25 or 24. He's like, I can't believe that that's how you were talking to someone who's like running a multi-billion dollar company. Um, and yeah, that was one of the first experiences that we had where he got to see like my, this way that I work, I guess, which led to them being interested in me managing them.
0: Yeah. And so for anybody that doesn't know who yes theory is or what they do, can you kind of give everyone just a little bit of a background on them?
1: For sure. Uh, yes theory is a, a movement that consists of uh, a youtube channel that creates videos all under the premise that the best things in life are outside of your comfort zone so matt thomas and Amar, the founders create videos where them they themselves get out of their comfort zone and face fears of vulnerabilities sometimes they challenge strangers to do that and sometimes they even challenge celebrities to, to face their fears like uh, most notably have gotten Will Smith to bungee jump out of a helicopter on his 50th birthday to face the spirit bike.
0: One important distinction I want you to make there, or something that stood out to me, is you didn't refer to them as YouTubers. You referred to Yes Theory as a movement. Why is that distinction important?
1: Uh, it's very important because uh, they're more than a YouTube channel uh They I think provide more than the average YouTube channel provides to people in terms of not just being empty entertainment but being a philosophy, an ideology, and a lifestyle that people can live their lives by as well, which I think is the reason why they have such high engagement um, is that they are a movement of people that are living their lives differently than maybe the status quo has laid out for them. Mm-hmm.
0: I love that. I just wanted to make sure everyone understood why you refer to it as a movement, not just YouTubers, but Mm -hmm. for you personally, before you took the job with them, what was your relationship with YouTube in that industry before accepting that job? Like, did you watch, even personally, like, did you watch YouTube a lot at home or was it something you didn't really do? Like, what was your relationship with YouTube at that point?
1: That's a great question. Um, It was actually very, like, I did not watch YouTube. My understanding of a YouTuber. Was Logan Paul, which I deemed being kind of crappy content that was, um, you know, people doing crazy pranks and crazy stunts that were dangerous and got a lot of views, but that was pretty much it. That was my mindset of what YouTube was. So finding Yes Theory and becoming friends with them was very eye opening because of the videos of theirs that I had watched at the time. I was like, Oh, this is actually really different than anything I had ever had as a preconceived notion of what YouTubers were doing. And uh, even when I had met them as a friend first, my mindset was, oh, these guys probably create a video a week that they film within a couple of hours and they spend the rest of their week screwing off and having fun and going to the beach and having parties and doing all this kind of like just fun, reckless stuff. And it was like very far from the experience that I had with them. Uh, They were all constantly working. They were constantly thinking about their videos. They were constantly thinking about ideas and PR and emailing brands and running a real business. And, you know, whenever I would would stay with them, I was in the backyard doing calls, doing business work. You know, they were all in the backyard editing, doing calls, doing emails. And so I was like, wow, these guys are not just screwing around. This is real.
0: Mm -hmm. And so you first met Matt, I believe was the first person you met through a connection. You guys hit it off right away. You told him you would decide you were going to move to Malibu. And when you eventually did, they ultimately end up partly, like you said, through that conversation you had in the car with the president of Steve Madden, they asked you to be their manager, but at first you said no. And when they, when you said no, they made you talk to their friend, Charlie Rocket. And I'm curious if you could kind of let us in the, the inside a little bit as to what you and Charlie talked about during that conversation.
1: For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I hadn't actually moved to LA yet. I, t- I came and told them, Hey, I've gotten the okay from Shopify to move here. Um, because I, I had, all, as soon as I met them and saw, got to Venice for the first time, I fell in love with LA and wanted to move here and Shopify had given me the okay. So when I told them, Hey, I'm going to be moving to LA. That's when they said, you should manage us on the side when you get here. And I said, no, because I didn't want to, uh, I didn't think I had the time to do it. I didn't want to. I wanted to do it justice if I was going to take it on. And I didn't even really know whether that was something I saw myself doing with managing and they said, yeah, go, char- to go talk to Charlie Rocket because, you know, he's managed two chains and, you know, he's someone that's mentoring us and we take his opinion very seriously. So I went and talked to to Charlie for three hours. And one of the things that was in that conversation was I told him uh, that that week someone had asked me a question that had really like sent me on a trip. Uh, that A friend of mine had asked me, Hey, man, like, what do you want to be and what's your why? And I consider myself a very self aware person, but when he asked me that, I didn't really know the answer. And I told him, when he asked me, what do I want to be? I said, I want to be an entrepreneur. And he said, okay, well, what's your why? Like, what's your purpose? And I didn't know how to answer that. I was just like, wow, I'm just kind of saying entrepreneur, but I don't really know anything further than that. And so I, that whole week, I spent my time thinking and thinking and thinking, like, what is my why? What is my purpose? Like, what do I want to stand for? Why do I want to be an entrepreneur? And when I met with Charlie, it was right when I thought I had an answer to that. And uh, Char- I had, was telling Charlie this, and Charlie's like, okay, well, what's your answer? And I said, my answer is that I want to be an entrepreneur because I want to help other entrepreneur- entrepreneurs do better business. And I want to inspire other people to be able to feel comfortable taking a leap of faith In order to pursue their own passions and entrepreneurial dreams and he was like he looked at me and he goes you think that's your why and you're sitting here telling me that you're going to manage these guys part-time and not full-time and (laughs) and it was like kind of this thing in my mind where i knew that but i needed someone to call me on my shit and so i literally looked at him and i said Charlie, if I quit my job and I move out here to manage these guys, will you promise to mentor me and be there for me along the way and give me access to your network? And he said, done. And uh, I went back to the yes house and that night I was in bed. I think Amar was out of town. I was in Amar's bed, just sleeping. And a Matt comes in, turns the lights on and goes, how's the conversation with Charlie go? And I was like, it was good. And he goes, well, what do you think? And I was like, I don't want to manage you guys part time. And he's like, Oh, like, okay. okay." And I was like, no, I want to do it full time. And then he just kind of like wide eyed looked at me and was like, wow. Okay. Um, maybe we should leave this till tomorrow morning. And we'll give it a a deeper talk and like, you know, talked about the next morning and it kind of went from there.
0: And so it's like with a lot of people, when they have that spark of motivation, like in your sense, it was that that conversation with Charlie that led to the motivation to quit your job and then manage these guys full time. But when you get back to Toronto and you have to hand in your two weeks at Shopify, like I'm assuming like being one of the first 100 employees there, you helped them close the Steve Madden deal, some big deals for the company. You probably had a pretty good at Shopify. Like, so how hard was it to actually, once you got back after you're no longer in California, the motor like, like just not necessarily the motivations worn off, but like, how do you follow through in that? Because for some people, it might be difficult to kind of take off those golden handcuffs.
1: Yeah, uh, it was really difficult uh, to a degree. Like one of the things I noticed was the first day I got back to Toronto and I went into the office and we had our Monday morning meeting. Uh, I remember sitting there being like, it feels different now and um i had been feeling for a while like i wasn't being challenged as much like it wasn't pushing me out of my comfort zone so to speak and it i wasn't learning exponentially like i was uh when i first got to shopify and i realized that that was a sign that i needed to kind of go pursue something else and so i sat with that feeling for about a week until i realized that i can't i can't wait until things get more concrete with yes theory until i tell shopify cuz my plan was like I'm going to keep this a secret from Shopify for one to two, three months until it becomes a little bit more concrete with the guys and my visa. And then I'm going to tell Shopify. Um, And I was really bad at keeping a secret. And within like a week, I think I sat my director down and I told him what was happening and that I wanted to leave, but told him, you know, I I need to get a visa. So this is, um, this is not me putting in two weeks notice. This is actually me putting in five months notice. And uh, I put in five months notice and they let me stick around for five months. That's
0: awesome. And so like you said too, like the, like nothing was concrete, like you were still dealing with visas and everything and just being Canadian, I'm genuinely curious, how difficult was it to one, you have to get your visa, but then you're also opening a business in the United States. Like how difficult was that whole process?
1: Um, getting a visa wasn't too difficult because we had a really good case that, you know, management is considered something where... Uh you know, people like Yes Theory really need a manager and it isn't very hard to prove that like we had been already working together on other things in the past and that my skill set was uniquely fit to help them with what they needed. Um So that wasn't too bad. Incorporating a business in the States wasn't, it, it all wasn't too bad. Like it wasn't like crazy. I think the biggest struggles that a Canadian finds when moving to the States is that the States is not very, it, it's not very immigrant friendly. Like getting a bank account here was really hard because I needed proof of address and it was really hard to get, uh, or like I also needed a phone number and I couldn't get a phone number, like an American phone number because I didn't have a bank account and I didn't have any credit. And, you know, I want to go get a credit card, but they said, well, you can't get a credit card because you don't have any credit. And I was like, well, I'm putting all this money into the bank here. I don't understand. Like, you know, I'm good for it. If I'm putting tens of tens of thousands of dollars in your bank. But, you know, for me, just getting a social security number for the first time, they were like, you're basically considered an infant here. So those are the challenges that a Canadian runs into when moving to the States, or I guess anyone runs into moving into the States. you got to start from ground up when it comes to building credit. So I couldn't get a phone plan. I couldn't get an apartment. I couldn't get a credit card. Um, Those were all things that I had to start building from the ground up. Luckily, in my scenario, you know, I had the yes theory guys that, My phone plan initially was under them. Um, Even the, I mean, I stayed in the shack in their house for the first six months that I lived there uh, as my bedroom. So I was lucky that I had all those, but it would have been a lot harder if I was by myself moving. Mm
0: -hmm. No, absolutely. That's crazy. I didn't realize like in that context, it would be that difficult when like setting up a business and even the visas was easier than just getting a phone. Like that's kind of crazy.
1: It's Um, it's very, 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 very crazy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so you mentioned you kind of helped them with some things earlier prior to becoming their manager. One of them was helping them set up their clothing line, which is more than merch. It's a clothing line. It's a whole separate business. And mm-hmm. where, what I'm curious about that is, with, inf- like, with influencers and influencer marketing right now, do you think the industry as a whole, we're going to start to see more and more creators create their own businesses and then leverage their audience to promote their business as opposed to promoting a business for someone else? 100%.
1: A hundred percent. I think the the walls and the friction um, is is lessening on being able to start a business from the ground up. And I think, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, it was hard to start a clothing company uh, or a clothing line and source and distribute apparel, start a website or anything like that. Those things are a lot easier today. And that that's going to continue moving in that direction where not only is apparel going to become easy, but like, starting your own shoe line in 20 years is going to be easier than it is today. Starting your own coffee company in 10 years is going to be easier than it is today. And so with things becoming more accessible, and obviously, you know, in 20 in 2010, uh, starting a website was really, really hard. And then luckily Shopify came around and made it easy for everyone. And so now everyone has no excuse why they can't start an e-commerce store. So I think that the ball will continue to roll in that direction. And, uh, creators are realizing that they can make more money promoting their own thing, building equity in something that they can own down the line. And I wouldn't just say that creators are going to go move in that direction rather than doing deals with and promoting other brands. But I also think like what the next Nike, the next Lululemon, the next Folgers coffee is going to come from a creator. It's not going to come from a corporation.
0: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Like That was something I was just really interested because in, I think we're seeing more and more Like you said, creators move in that direction. So I was curious as to how someone in the industry views that. But fast forwarding back to when you decided to work with them full time, you're driving to the airport to move there officially and you get a phone call. Can you kind of let everyone in what the news was, what news was said to you on that phone call? I believe you were at a gas station when you actually got the phone call. Can you tell that story?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so the day actually so when I was moving to the moving to the states, my visa hadn't come in yet. I had bought the flight, the one-way flight without knowing when my visa was going to come in. I was just like banking on it coming in. And the day of my flight, I went I also at Shopify, I would get everything sent to Shopify, all my mail and stuff would show up at Shopify or any Amazon purchases and stuff. So I had like an idiot gotten the visa to deliver to Shopify rather than deliver to my house. So on the day of my flight to California I was like I'm going to go check Shopify one last time uh before before I leave and on the way to go get my visa at at Shopify stopped at a gas station and the guys called me and went Dude check Will Smith's YouTube channel. Check Will Smith's YouTube channel. And I was I knew we had obviously challenged him and I was like no way. So I mean I I got off the of FaceTime went and looked at Will Smith's YouTube channel. Saw the video of him accepting the challenge and probably did like three, four laps in this uh, gas station. My girlfriend was with me and I was like, holy shit, this is crazy. I couldn't even comprehend what was going on. And then went to Shopify to go tell everyone that like, guys, check. Will Smith just responded to the YouTubers that I'm going to go manage. Everyone at Shopify is kind of just like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Like they were, already knew I was leaving, but they didn't really, no one knew what yesterday he was. Or who Yes he was, and then now I'm telling them that we're working with Will Smith. It kinda of seemed like I was this like jerk off that was like rubbing it in their face that like what I did after Shopify was working. <laughs> but also coincidentally, my visa arrived that day. So my plan up until this point was to actually go to the States on a tourist visa, come back, get the real visa and then go back. But it, luckily all things aligned in the last three hours before my flight. Will Smith answered them, my visa came in and I went to the States and to be honest, Will Smith responding to the guys and accepting their challenge made me more afraid of moving um, than I was previous to him answering. Because before he answered, my I had this like mindset of what we were going to do when I got there, how, what I was going to make impact on, what direction we were moving in. And as soon as Will Smith answered, all of that went out the wall because it was like we were getting attention like we had never gotten before. And it just became a a lot more serious now it was like who are these guys that are collaborating with Will Smith and I was thrown into the room my second week of being a manager I was thrown into the room with Will Smith's manager of 12 years and you know I had to kind of have these conversations about what this partnership was going to look like I had no fucking idea what I was doing and so that started to make me a lot more nervous but I guess maybe to bring this full circle to, you know, earlier on in our conversation, like I was very comfortable with that pressure from, okay, I got to figure it out. I got to be independent. I got to like learn from the ground up. So I uh, did a lot of work early on in, in arriving to like catch myself up to speed and learn.
0: What are some of those things that you did to learn so quickly? I picked a lot of people's brains. So I would
1: reach out to people in the entertainment industry, friends of the S theory that I thought were, you know, knew what they were doing. I was like calling friends that were or people that I had met that work in entertainment. And I was like, relentlessly just asking questions, you know, what is this, what is the, this contract usually look like? What are the favorable splits here? Hey, person who runs this YouTube channel, what do you usually get paid on stuff like this? Like, is this fair? Or is this like them being aggressive? Like, you know, should we be getting this? Should we be getting that? Um, And that was the way that I kind of, figured it out early on. And still the way I figure out a lot early on is like not being afraid to ask questions and expanding my network so that I have the ability to access people who are experienced in a lot of the things I'm trying to get into.
0: And one of those people that you have the ability to pick their brain and ask questions is Scooter Braun. And I was like, how did you end up meeting (laughs) Scooter?
1: Uh, the Scooter story is like very fascinating. I'll try to tell like a condensed version of it. Um, I was networking around, one of my goals was to meet Scooter. He has been an idol of mine and someone I've been looking up to for a long time, made me actually want to get into management. Um, so it was one of my goals that I wanted to connect with Scooter. And uh, I was having lunch with Charlie what Charlie Rockets, uh, and he was telling me about how he writes things down in his quantum possibilities book. And they come true. You know, he wrote that he was going to be a Nike athlete and Nike had just reached out to him. He ended up being in a Nike commercial after, but at the time he wasn't. He was like, dude, I told, I wrote in this book that I was going to work with Oprah and now I'm connected with Oprah's producer. So he was just like, dude, you should write things down in your book and they'll come true. And I shit you not, I went home and I took out a book and my journal that I journal in often. And I wrote quantum possibilities at the top. And the number one thing I wrote was Scooter Braun wants to mentor me. I don't remember what number two, three, or four were, but that was the number one thing. And 15 minutes later, Amar bur- like bust into my room and said, Scooter Brown just emailed me, Scooter Brown just emailed me. And I was like, what? I was like totally taken back because my room has no windows. I didn't tell anyone what I was writing down. And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, tomorrow is Matt's birthday. And Scooter is one of Matt's idols. And I've been emailing Scooter to meet Matt on his birthday. Um, And Scooter responded saying, bring your boy over tomorrow, we'll make dreams happen. And, you know, fast forward the next morning, we're in Scooter's office and the guys go, obviously they know the story by now. And they go, Zach, tell Scooter your story. First first of all, when I met Scooter and the guys, with the guys, he turns to me and goes, oh, you're the manager. And I go, yeah. And he goes, okay. And then the guys go, tell Scooter your story. I tell him the story and he turns to Matt and goes, would it be a good birthday present for you if I mentored your manager? And Matt was like, of course. So Scooter said, you know, you have my number, call me when you need me. I'm happy to help, but just don't waste my time. And when we left that room that night, I I texted him and just said, Hey man, I really appreciate all all, like you being who I thought you were. Like everything he told us in that room showed kindness. He gave us time. He wasn't mean. He wasn't like, okay, here's take a picture and then get out of my office. He was like, gave us the time of day and focused on us. And I was really thankful for that. And just messaged him saying, Hey man, I know you said the whole thing about mentoring, but Um, if you don't have time and that was just something you said in the room, then like, I I still think the world of you, but I just like, I don't want to take that lightly. Like, if you really want to mentor me, that that comes with a time commitment and that comes with like the openness to help. So if you don't have the time for that and you just kind of said that in the room, then no worries. Like, uh, you know, let's stay in touch on other stuff. But if you really do mean it and you feel like you have the time for it, then I'm, I'm serious about it. And he just messaged me back being like, let's get it. Um, and so I called him up on that often and and would call him for tips or advice or different things at different times. And he was, he was, and is very instrumental to the growth that I've had, uh, since moving here.
0: And one other thing that Scooter did when you guys went to see him is he filmed a video for you. Can you explain (laughs) what that video was and why it was important?
1: Yeah. So when I left Shopify, I went to the GM of Shopify plus. And I said, one of the struggles that I'm having, man, is that I, you know, I haven't been able to find anyone that's been a YouTube creator manager. I find music managers or even finding music managers is hard. Like, I don't have any idols in the space. I don't know anyone in entertainment. And he turned to me and he went, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's important to go find mentors. But, you know, just like, don't think that you're going to get mentored by Scooter Braun. Like, start smaller because Scooter Braun has no like no reason or any value to get from like helping someone at your level and so uh i had told the guys this too and then when we were in the room i told the scooter and i was like this is fucking crazy that i'm meeting you and that you're saying that we're gonna have this relationship because like this was the experience that i just had leaving shopify and he was like really that's what someone told you he's like fuck it get it let's get a camera out let's get a video to prove that guy wrong and uh he took a video just being like zach was told that he wouldn't get he shouldn't reach out to people like me, but I'm just a regular guy, and Zach and I got figure it out together. And uh, I took that video, and I sent it to the GM of Shopify Plus. And his response back was, I didn't say you shouldn't reach out to Scooter Braun. I said that, like, he probably, you know, has better things to do. I just kind of weaseled his way out of it, but it felt really good, because I was like, fuck yeah, dude. I It ended up happening, and it worked out like that. So that was a really cool
0: moment for me. Yeah, no, for sure. That That's awesome. And like, in terms of being a manager, what are some things you think people don't expect about being a manager?
1: Mm. Uh, you're definitely a full-time therapist. Uh, you're a full-time therapist. You got to be there for, you're there for the highest and the highest moments and the lowest moments. So it's interesting whenever I think of a manager for anyone, you know, like with Scooter with Ariana, Scooter with Justin, I know that no one in the world has ever seen Justin at lower points in his life than Scooter has, and he's had to deal with him at those points. And a lot of the times when we think about these stars, we notice their successes and we notice their extravagant moments, but we don't really get the privy access to them when they're really struggling or through their lows or through their doubts or through their hesitation. And so every manager has been able to see that their client or the person that they're working with in those moments and has had to be there in those rooms and and get them help them get through those times um and that's honestly a huge part of the role is like you got to care about these people you got to care about their mental health you got to care about their their well-being it's not just about business it's not just about getting them paid it's not just about getting them exposure a lot of the time it's just making sure that they're okay as humans and you got to be the person that they can go to especially if they don't have other people whether it be family or friends to fall onto um the manager ends up becoming that person Mm
0: -hmm. and from everything that i've watched listened to read about you and your relationship with the guys from yes theory you do genuinely care about them as humans and i was curious as to what some of your favorite memories are just working and spending time with those guys over the last several years
1: that's a good question too
0: um
1: one of my favorite moments with them is the day of the jump with will smith um we sat down in a tent at the end of the day, the white tent, everything was like white around us. And we sat in this tent in the, right on the edge of the grand Canyon. And, uh, a lot of stuff had happened that day with like me going to bat for getting access to stuff, getting a little bit of money, getting a different couple, bunch couple of things in that, in that situation. And, uh, we just huddled at the end of the day in this white tent and they all just kind of looked at me and the look in their eyes was for one of the first times, like, a an unconditional trust. Like you tell us what to do. You lead us in the direction that you think is right. And it was like, I felt like they just showered me with trust unconditionally with no, like being able to say like, we trust you wholeheartedly, um, moving forward. And that was kind of the first moment I felt like a manager, um, for the first time for real. And that was a very special moment that I think about very often. Um, I would also say, you know, there's certain moments like uh, Thomas and Amar and I went to Coachella last year and it was a very special bonding experience of just being able to like not think about work, not think about anything, but just have fun, listen to music, dance. Um, A lot of the times where I look back at our best moments, it's like sometimes not even work related. It's, when we're just being friends, when we're going out on the water and just riding jet skis or when we're getting a cottage and we're just like being goofy and uh, stuff like that are the best moments that I have with the guys.
0: What are some things that you've learned from them? Like not about being a manager, but more so just about life and being around them and the whole movement that they've created. What are some things you've learned?
1: Hmm. I have learned a lot from them. From the movement in particular, I've learned that I mean, it's reiterated its truth to me many, many times, like truly, truly, truly seeking discomfort is the best way to grow, develop and become the best version of yourself. And I see that through their actions. I see that through the impact that they have through other people's lives. Um, But that's been one of the big things that's continuously come back and come back and come back is um, this philosophy does work if you do apply it and even though they're the yes theory guys there's times where they get uncomfortable and they avoid that discomfort and it's interesting to see that and then also then see them shift and go head on into that discomfort and then everything works out and it and it and they you know uh they end up having a phenomenal experience and then that reiterating in my mind like wow it really is true that if you do just find what what you're avoiding because it feels uncomfortable and you really go at it it always 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 works out and it always teaches you something and you always grow and develop and it's always an experience that you look back at and you're happy that you went through um so that's kind of been one of the things that I've learned from them is is just the constant constant reminder that seeking discomfort is one of the best ways to live a happy and fulfilling life.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's, like you said, that's the movement that they've created. But with that movement, I'm curious on a business side. So I've heard you in a previous interview, you went on a tangent how saying how all industries are optimized for money. That we keep seeing so many Avengers and Marvel movies because there's a system that works. They know people are going to come in, they're going to pay for those movies. But on the flip side, I've also heard you say that with Yes Theory, you guys know what kind of videos are going to do well, gonna get a lot of views, which by extension is gonna bring in more money. But you don't necessarily do those videos every time because that's not sticking to the mission that you're following. So how do you balance one knowing what works and needing to, it's a business as at the end of the day, it's a movement, but it's also a business. So you need money, but It's also a movement and you need to follow that movement as well. How do you balance those two things?
1: Yeah. I mean, work in progress, but um, yeah, constant, constant work in progress. That's a million dollar question, multi-million dollar question. Cause we, I don't think we get it right all the time. We try to figure out like what that balance should look like. We know when we do a video and we go, hmm, does this feel like we're just doing this because it's, we think it's going to get a lot of views. Um, And then, you know, it's a constant Tug of war almost between, okay, well, we have to make these impactful videos, but if we make too many of them and they're too just mission driven, then it's never going to cast a wide enough net to get more people into this channel or less about it, even from a monetary standpoint. But if we think about it from like growing followers and spreading the message to more bodies, if we're just talking to the core audience and just spreading the philosophy, how is this going to cater towards anyone or catch a new eyeball? Usually people aren't looking for. The- preachy, mission-driven, philosophy-driven content. They're looking for entertainment. And then when we do the entertainment stuff, it's like catching a shit ton of eyeballs. But then when it pulls people in, how do we make sure that they're also seeing the uh, philosophy and mission and, and uh, this ideology of yes theory and seek discomfort? And um, it's always like we have to find a balance of doing both. The Justin Bieber burrito video is our most viewed video or one of our most viewed videos and has pulled in the most amount of followers of any video we've ever done. But uh, with that said, it hasn't uh, driven home the mission as much as other videos have. And so I think it's about being able to be conscious about doing both and then being able to one of the tactics that I think Thomas and the team employ extremely well is hiding the vegetables which is what we basically call creating something that from the outside perspective looks like it's fun entertainment and uh, just like a bunch of guys doing something that's hilarious or uh, clever and witty. But then you watch this video and you go, oh wow, I didn't under- I didn't realize that there's like this really cool mission thread of uh, this Yes Theory philosophy throughout the core storytelling of the video. So you click on it because it seems like this fun, entertaining, hit YouTube idea. And by the end of it, you feel a little warmth and go, Hmm, you know what? Like I got, I got something morally out of that as well. So hiding the vegetables as we call it. Mm
0: -hmm. No, I love that. That's awesome. And with, with your number one, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but your number one KPI is people taking action with that being your number one KPI. How do you, how do you measure that?
1: (laughs) I mean, the difficulty with that being the number one KPI is that it's actually really hard to track. Um, so we try to, track it in different ways sometimes that's when we uh put out a uh a challenge like how many people are accepting that challenge when we put out a challenge to do the 100 days of sweat like how many people are really joining in on that um, sometimes it's when we release a documentary how many people are actually going to watch that on a separate platform um things of that nature or when we like text out hey, everyone, we challenge you today to go do XYZ thing for a stranger. How many people, and then like text us back this, if you've done it, then how many people are doing that? And you know what's that engagement like? So I guess in, in a way, it's like tracking different forms of engagement and and seeing uh, what that's like is the way we're measuring people taking action towards their own life. Because a lot of the yes to you challenges are about people doing things for themselves. So it's not just about, hey, click this button or buy this thing. It's more of like, hey, we challenge you guys all to go do this thing that we think is going to be good for you. Now respond back in this way if you've done it or follow this if you've done it or send us this if you've done it. And then we track that and see, oh, wow, a lot of people actually went out and did it. Mm
0: And so like with all that, all that things you just listed, you also mentioned like the texting platform or you mentioned driving people off platform to watch a documentary somewhere else. And we've talked throughout this conversation how it's not just a YouTube channel, it's a movement. So what are all the different touch points people have with the movement? It's not just the YouTube channel. What are all the things that Yes Theory is responsible for putting out into the world to interact with the audience?
1: Yeah, um, I think that's like one of the most important things of building a movement is that you can't rely on especially one platform. But, you know, more than that, you can't rely on a lot of these social media platforms to be the way that you're communicating with the audience, because these platforms get to control how many people within your audience see what you're saying. And, you know, uh, at the end of the day, some of them can go belly up and you can lose all your followers as well because you don't own any of that information. So, you know, we think that that can happen. Where's YouTube going to go? YouTube's not going to like disappear, but you know, a lot of people thought that about Vine at some point and it did. And so, uh, you can't keep all your eggs in one basket. You do have to diversify and platforms like uh community, which does SMS marketing and email marketing or email newsletter lists are really important to be able to create a direct relationship with your audience. So those are two of the ways that we, we do have direct, direct, uh, relationships is through email and SMS. Um, and that allows us to do independent projects like Instead of putting a documentary out on a platform, uh, we're allowed to do it on our own site, on our own terms, with our own storytelling and and, uh, be able to control the monetary side of it as well, where uh, we ended up doing it as a pay what's fair model where people could pay whatever they wanted for the documentary. And and, uh, that didn't have to, you know, go be split out X amount of ways with these other companies. We were able to keep 100% of it. Mm
0: -hmm. And so with all of that, with their website, their texting platform, email, YouTube, their clothing line, they're making money in all sorts of different ways. But where does One Day Entertainment fit into that puzzle? Like how, we don't have to get into this if you don't want to, I'm just curious, how is it structured for your business? Is how do you make money then?
1: Right. Uh, One Day Entertainment is a is a management company. So management companies usually, and in our case, uh, take management commission off the money that's made. Um, so, every dollar that pretty much comes into Yes Siri, One Day Entertainment is taking a percentage of that. Um, and some management companies do it differently. Some management companies stay like this. Um, a lot of times, management companies might uh, start business ventures together with um, their clients. So, that's something Yes Siri and I have chatted about and, and uh, are going to potentially be doing in the future is like, okay, on some of the next businesses that we start. Um, that's going to require a lot of legwork to get off the ground. Let's consider going into this as a partner, um, from the get-go so that we can, we can build the businesses together rather than it always just being a revenue share or profit share. Um, which is kind of like the transparently, these are like the, the things that management companies have to figure out. Like a lot of the time in management, you are building something that isn't yours. Someone else owns a hundred percent of it uh, you're getting like, you know, your, your due cut or commission off everything. But at the end of the day, you're pretty dispensable at the sense that like a manager can be let go or can be fired or can be something can happen with that relationship. And then you're not left with owning a, a lot. You're, you're left with pretty much nothing at that point. Um, so management is a very risky game and it's actually funny. I laugh with a lot of managers about how illogical that sounds imagine spending like every waking moment of your life building something and then you don't own anything of it. And it's someone else's baby that they own a hundred percent of. So sometimes it could feel very illogical. Um, So yeah, that's why I think more and more managers are looking at like, okay, let's actually start building stuff with our clients. Let's start founding things with our clients. Let's start partnering with them where we're now not just getting a commission or profit share, but we're also, you know, Uh, incentivized on the upside. Mm -hmm.
0: Is with that in mind, then, is that why one of the core principles of One Day Entertainment is that influencers don't need agents, they need CEOs?
1: A hundred percent. And I think even if you are are commissioning, and even if you are taking a profit share or a revenue share and you don't own equity, I think it's really important for managers to operate as if they do own equity. I think it's very important for managers to make decisions as if they are the hundred percent stakeholder of that business. So a lot of the times, this is very prevalent in music that managers don't do this. Um, but, you know, there's been times with Yes Theory where we've gotten an offer that, you know, gives it off, gives up Yes Theory ownership. It gives up Yes Theory, uh, like, let's, let's keep it at ownership. It gives up Yes Theory ownership, but get, brings in a lot of cash in the door right now. And, you know, the way a manager is structured or incentivized is, well, it doesn't matter. It's not my ownership. Let's get it, bring as much cash in the door as possible. And I'll take my p- cut off that and then screw the ownership. I didn't own it anyways. It's the client's loss. Um, and that's like a very selfish move to make because it's good for the manager, but bad for the client. So it's really important in my eyes for a client or for a manager to think as if they own and, and act as if they own hundred percent of the company. And that's been things that we've done it with Yes Theory. Like I preach in business that ownership is really important. It shouldn't be given away lightly if it is at all. Um, and that, you know, uh, it's better to to not take a lump sum of money up front and hold the ownership over a long period of time, because you'll probably be more successful in the long run and you're betting on yourself. Um, so, yeah, although I, I think that's important because that further incentivizes you, like I think a lot of managers struggle with that. Uh, at times because you're not actually incentivized to make those decisions. I think it takes a special type of person to care, which is why caring is so important as a manager. Um, Me and a a mentor of mine and a good friend, Chris Aru, who manages Logic and John Bellion, we have a saying that we remind each other of. You manage like you manage your mother. Um, Would you put your mom in a really shitty record label deal? No, you wouldn't. It doesn't matter how much money would come into your pocket. You'd never screw your mom over. Um, so uh, that's kind of like the saying we, we say to one another, you know, Chris got an offer for a million dollar record label deal for, for logic and, you know, his 15, 20, 10% cut out of that would have been a lot for a 24 year old, um, or even younger at the time. But he said no to it because he knew that it wasn't the right deal for logic. Um, and, you know, likewise, and similarly, I've had a lot of deals that have come into yes theory where. I knew it wasn't the right deal for them, even though it was really structured to be lucrative for me.
0: Manage like you manage your mother. I love that. I think that's great. Um, and so kind of on the flip side, then as a creator, when, as a manager, when do you think a creator should get a manager? Uh,
1: as early as possible. Um, I, I read the book, uh, all the things you need to know, or everything you need to know about the music industry, uh, which is a Donald by Donald Passman. It's, it's a great book for people that care about the music industry. But uh, I read that book, and I remember the one of the first chapters is about man, finding a manager as an artist, and it like reiterates like the manager is the most important piece of the puzzle. And obviously, I'm biased, and I want to toot managers' horns too much, but like it, I really do believe it's true. Like they're the first person that's going to come in and have like a very holistic view on steering the ship that you're trying to build and, and take, uh, you know, and, and build into like this huge extravagant thing. And if the sooner you can find a manager that brings good ideas to the table, is passionate about what you're creating, whether it's music or content or whatever, um, the the faster that thing is going to grow from the get-go. Um, I think finding a really good manager and finding someone that checks those boxes, is, it can be really hard for people. And I chat with people all the time that come to me being like, how do I find a manager? What should I look for in a manager? Do I know if this how do I know if this person's good or bad? Um, and I don't think there's one answer for any of that, but I don't think it's ever too soon to find a manager Um I would say the sooner you can find one that's good, the better
0: mm-hmm. and so for your business. At what point, like, how long did you run it just as yourself when you were the only person running as a solopreneur? When did you start to build out the team of your business? And when did you start to bring on more talent under your management company?
1: Sure. Um, It probably took me about a year until I hired my first person. Um, Was that a year? No, maybe about a year and a half. Yeah, a year and a half until I brought on my first person in terms of like my first, let's call it employee onto One Day Entertainment. And then it wasn't until uh, late 2019 that I I brought on Matt Como, which was the second creator. And then early 2020 when I brought on Brandon, which was the first artist as, as client. Okay.
0: And so around that year and a half, Mark, like what happens where you're finally in a position where like, okay, now I'm going to bring someone on and just a little bit of context as to why I'm asking. I recently started my own marketing agency and I hit a point earlier today where I officially signed like my, ad at capacity as an individual, but I've only been full time for three weeks. So it's like, I don't want to dive into hiring people right away. So like, I'm curious and you from your, like from your history, what was it around that year and a half Mark? you are like, okay, now's the time to hire somebody.
1: Hmm. Um. The first thing was that I, I felt like there was stuff I was leaving on the table. Like I realized like I'm doing as much as I can and there's more to be done and it's not being done because there's no one else to do it. And so that made me realize like, okay, well I'm making enough money. The company's making enough money to afford someone else. And there's probably money being left on the table because I'm, I'm, I'm not able to do enough to keep doing everything. Um, so those were the things that I was looking at. And from there to me, I actually never hesitated on if I need someone or not. The question was more of like, how do I find that person? And what am I actually looking for? Like, what is the second edition in a management company need to be? And those were the questions that I was asking rather than whether I needed them or not.
0: Mm. And so how do you find that person?
1: I ended up finding her through her cold emailing me. So she emailed me an article that she had written about Yes Theory's business model and just said, Hey, I wrote this article. You should take a look. And I read it. I thought it was really well-written. It was really, it was a really smart and intelligent perspective. And I wanted to hop on a call with her. We hopped on a call. Um, I told her like selfishly, the reason I wanted to call was that I'm kind of looking to fill this position. And if it was something she was interested in, she was, and she flew out here to interview. And then, started probably like a week or two later. Um, and she's like been, I mean, I don't even can imagine one day entertainment existing without her at this point. Um, nor do I think that the guys can imagine one day entertainment, you know, managing them without her being part of it. So it's it's incredible how much happens in a short amount
0: of time. Wow. That's awesome. And so how, how has the business overall been impacted by COVID? Good question.
1: Um, at first, it was uh, it was really scary because we had all these videos planned that were travel related and international and all that. So at first, it was like shit. This just threw all of our plans out the window. It was really discouraging, given that we were just starting to find that we had a lot of ideas that we were excited to film internationally. Um, and then after that, we said, okay, well, how do we pivot and make content? that's new and, and is domestically filmed or, you know, even that the first we were like filmed in our house. Um, that was very challenging. Other than that, you know, it has been helpful because content is getting a lot more attention now. And a lot of brands are putting their money in content, whereas they weren't before and now they have no choice. So it's had a little bit of ups and downs. I would say it's good from that aspect of being able to have more brand interest and, and things of that nature. But obviously it has been, challenging in the respect that yes theory is a travel oriented channel it requires a lot of flying and a lot of visiting new countries in order to create some of the content concepts that we do so it really forced the guys to seek some discomfort and start dreaming and thinking of better uh, different ideas that don't uh constitute those things and maybe making travel related videos had started becoming very comfortable and actually brainstorming video concepts that are different and are a little bit more experimental uh was just the type of discomfort that I kind of think they needed.
0: Mm-hmm. So in like a, in, a, in a non-covid world or whenever things go back to quote unquote normal, what is your it might be tough to kind of give an answer, but what does your schedule look like on a regular like weekly basis?
1: Yeah. Um I would say it's about a mixture of calls, meetings, uh emails, uh and then like the independent work is like so varied. So, you know, calls and meetings and emails are usually about some sort of business structure, things I'm trying to make happen. It's, I know people always say like my day is always different, but my day really is always different. But those are the things I'm usually doing. I'm either on a phone call with someone, I'm either meeting someone in a business meeting or going out to lunch with them or dinner to with them. Talk about, you know, maybe our clients are collaborating or maybe I'm trying to get a brand deal and they're like the head of an agency. Um, things of that nature. And then, you know, sometimes it's independent work. Like sometimes I'm helping create mood boards for seeking comfort clothing line. Maybe sometimes I'm, uh, trying to figure out, uh, an episode idea or helping the guys come up with creative concepts for an episode idea for a brand partnership that we're doing in the future. Um, so those are kind of the things my, my work usually lends itself to. Um, and with email, it's the same thing. Correspondence, uh, you know, trying to get deals pushed across, trying to get things in place, trying to get productions in place, and and logistics in place.
0: And so, within that schedule, where does your personal social media kind of fall in? I know your TikTok bio is "Who says managers can't be creators?" But what is, what is your approach to using social media? If you have like a specific approach or strategy to it at all?
1: Yeah, I used to be a lot less or a lot more. Uh, it used to be more of a thought for me. I was, I, it was a conversation I have with Scooter because. Obviously, he's a manager that has popularized having an independent brand as a manager. And his advice to me was kind of like, focus on the guys first and foremost. Like it's too early for you to be taking uh, your own brand super seriously, where it's taking up a chunk of your time. Like me doing my TikTok was so that I can learn about TikTok. I can learn about the tools. I can learn about what works, what doesn't. Just also just like exercise a little bit of my creative muscles. Um, only until about 2020, I would say this year is when I've given a little bit more focus on sharing some of the lessons that I have and sharing some of the experiences that I have for like the 21, 22, 23 year old version of me that's listening, being like, oh, wow, I really needed this or wow, this is inspiring. And I started only realizing that like, as much as I'm also just starting out and I'm just starting to learn these things, like it's helpful for me to share these because they are impactful to to certain people. Um, so this has been a very recent thing for me. So I would say it takes a small chunk of my time, but it's becoming something that's becoming increasingly important for me, um, as I want to also impact others through the lessons and experiences that I've had. Mm-hmm.
0: And you said, so it was around 2020, where you started to kind of put the focus back onto it. And I was curious if you could mm-hmm. share how you organize your yearly goals and review them every month. And then also, if you could give me a little bit of context onto the Zach, to your board of directors. <laughs> Wow.
1: Done a lot of homework. Yeah. Um, yeah. Every year I write down a bunch of goals on a piece of paper starting somewhere around December 1st. Um, I write a bunch of goals. I revisit it. I scratch goals off that I feel like I just wrote it because it sounded cool, but I I don't actually want to do that thing. So like I might write, like I want to learn Spanish, but then I'll come back a week later and be like, do I really want to learn Spanish or does that seem like an ideal thing? That would be nice. Like, do I really want to go through the process of learning Spanish? And so I might cross it out um, by closer to January 1st, I tried to have a list of goals I actually want to do. And then I break those down into categories, whether it be health and fitness, mindfulness, self-development, family and relationships. Yes. Theory, one day entertainment, financials uh, are some of my buckets. And I put goals for those categories. I put, I quantify them. So like for family, I always use the example of like one of my goals every year is like build a better relationship with my mom. And uh, I quantify that by like, I want to talk to my mom twice a week on the phone. I want to do one big trip with my mom a year. And that to me looks like a good relationship with my mom. Uh, So I quantify everything and then I put it all in my calendar so that everything is booked out. So that I know like, okay, my two calls with my mom a week are in the calendar Um, or like reminders twice a week to like call my mom when it's in my calendar. And then I will do weekly or monthly reflections in my notebook where I rank myself one to 10 in these categories on how well I feel like I'm doing. And I try to get all of them out to 10 so that I can see, okay, wow, like family is out of two this week. I'm gonna make certain specific goals for family for next week uh, so I can bring that number up. And usually it works in such a way where you know if family's out of two, but financials out of 10 and I'd pull family up to eight financials might drop down to 7 and then so it's like constant game of like uh aligning your time and your resources um so yeah and then the board of directors was me realizing that an entrepreneur is a business in of itself like you are and that actually does not even need to be an entrepreneur every person can be look at themselves as a business and you know when i say that i mean like you Uh, there's strategy that goes into your life. There's optimization that goes into your days. There's all the things and the practices that businesses use to become the best versions of themselves, humans have as well. Um, And so if you are this passionate, ambitious person trying to go off and achieve your dreams, well, there's probably a group of people that are your mentors and peers and friends and parents that advise you on what to do that you care about their opinions and things. And so I came up with this concept of like, if you had friends that you appointed to like your personal board of directors and you asked them to like be there for big decisions and give their input, um, then that would be like a very interesting thing. So I ended up doing that, going to some of my closest friends and saying like, Hey, I'd love for you to be on my board of directors. What that requires is like being open to at least one FaceTime a month. Um, I also thought to myself, like, I want to make sure my board of directors is diverse and I want people that are, you know, both male and female. I want people that are old and young. I want people that are from all different ethnicities. Um, just so that when I go to my board of directors on a big decision that I want to make, like who's my next client, I have a couple of people from the music industry, I have a couple of people from the content industry, I have a couple of people from the fashion industry. Um, so I'm getting a very well-rounded thought process where I'm hearing different perspectives. And then once I hear all of these people that I've deemed all intelligent and good at what they do, I then sit down and go, who do I believe? Who do I not believe? What do I think I actually believe in? And what do I not believe in? And then I make my decision after, in my opinion, I've heard the opinions of, you know, let's say five to 10 of my smartest friends.
0: Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. Like that was something that came up a couple of times when I was doing my research. And I was like, I just wanted to know a little bit more about it. I think having a personal board of directors is interesting, something I'm going to try and implement into my own life, as well as the way you organize your goals and kind of rank them. And it's not just business goals or personal goals, but they're all weighed against each other. I really like how you have that structured. Um, but before I let you go, I ask everybody the same standard set of questions before at the end of every podcast. We'll try and get through them as fast as we can here. There's about five here. And the first one being, you're going to dinner, you could take three people, anybody dead or alive, who do you take to dinner?
1: Three people, dead or alive. Um, number one is Tupac. <laughs> I know that's a very weird answer for that. That was That's always my number one answer to that question. I think he's one of the most phenomenal leaders. Um, I think he's been able to just have some of the greatest impact on, uh, culture and on social, uh, issues and that are important in a very short amount of time. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't even know that he, you know, he died at 25. So I'm a, we're already older than him and, you know, his name is still, is still very relevant. Um, I would also say, um, I'd still probably bring Scooter to that meeting, even though I, I have the opportunity to chat with him. I think he'd add a lot of value and ask the right questions and be a good voice in the room. Um, and then who else would I take to that dinner? I would say either Kobe Bryant. Yeah, Kobe Bryant. I would bring Tupac, Kobe, and Scooter Braun. If if not Scooter, because I can already chat with him, I would probably say uh, J. Cole. Cause I, same thing. I think just a big fan of his. And and I think he's a really great leader that is very conscious about things going on in the world and has very interesting opinions on them. So I would love to pick his brain on that.
0: What is some of the best advice you've ever gotten? Best advice I've ever gotten?
1: Uh, You don't get what you wish for, you get what you work for. It's probably the single best piece of advice I've ever gotten. Mm -hmm.
0: What, where does that, sorry, I usually don't ask follow-up questions to these yeah. answers, but where does that fall into then with manifestation and the stuff that you've learned from Charlie Jabley? Uh
1: Yeah, I think that, and this is my thing with all of that, you know, uh, speak it into existence type stuff. Like you should speak it into existence, write it in your book, put it on your mood board, but then go out and hustle for it. I think the the negative notion to a lot of these things is that uh, you just put it on your mood board and then like you sit at home and eat chips and watch movies and play video games and like hopefully Scooter Braun emails you. Uh, but for a lot of these things, you put yourself in the right positions, you put yourself in the right circles, you work hard, you do the things that you need to do and you just put it into existence by, like, by making this like a spoken known goal of yours or known thing that you want. Um, And I think when you are doing everything in order to help yourself, the universe will then help you. Um, So I think it's okay to wish for something. And I I advise everyone to have dreams and wishes. But I think it's a very, very, very important distinction between what you wish for and what you work for. Um, So I think that that's a very important line people need to bring in their minds. Like I think there's a lot of people out there that have desires and dreams, but then also don't go out and work for those desires and dreams. It's just things that they go tell
0: people. Mm-hmm. No, hundred percent. And that was just kind of like the distinction I was I was looking for. I'm on the exact same page. I just, I know some people might be wondering how that works. So I think mm. that's very well put. The next question what is one thing about you that people would not expect?
1: One thing about me that people would not expect. Um I don't know the answer that is a really good question. It's tough um I would say maybe that like I am I I can be very goofy. I guess maybe sometimes people don't think that I can be really goofy. Um, I definitely have that side of me. Um, I'm also like, I think I'm a, a, I have different sides of me. So a lot of people go like, oh, like when we met you, we thought like you were just all business and you're all serious and you're all about this. But I think there's, you know, like my girlfriend sees a side of me that's like goofy, make jokes, uh, do impressions of people uh and and just like yeah be that person i think maybe sometimes people don't know that about me that i i really enjoy that side of me and i just love like um being a goofball a lot of the time
0: (laughs) that's awesome what is what is one thing that's so important everybody needs to know
1: what is one thing that's so important that everybody needs to know i think right now i think it's it's the black lives matter (laughs) i think that's one thing that's so goddamn important everyone just needs to know. Is that that Black Lives Matter and that that's a thing that like I'm very glad that is now being is not a no longer a controversial statement. Now, Fortune 500 companies are agreeing and stating that that happens. I think it's just about time that we just acknowledge that they haven't for a long time, and it's about time that they do start mattering.
0: That is that is a very good answer to that question. Um, the final question. Is I so for the final question, I like to flip the script a little bit. So instead of me asking the question, it's you asking the question, but it's not to me. So pretend you have this crystal ball and you can ask this crystal ball any question and you will get the one hundred percent truth. What is one question you want to know the answer to?
1: <laughs> what is the meaning of life? Uh what is the meaning of life or like where did we all come from? Where do we go when we die? I think these are some of the questions that like uh are uh, extremely existential and like deep but i think they determine so much of what we do right like i think the relationship we have with death for example is so much of what drives us whether you're afraid of death or whether you have accepted it as this inevitability um so i think knowing the answer to that leads you to i think live a very different life If we knew what happened or if we knew where we went um, then it would completely change uh in my opinion the the course of our actions and the course of our beliefs so that's what i would ask this crystal ball not to get too
0: deep (laughs) no that that's okay that question usually gets pretty deep but i want to thank you for taking the time to be on this podcast i know there's a lot more we could talk about like trying to find a monkey for yes theory meditation how relaxing it is to play guitar on your porch but Mm. i want to thank you for taking the time to be on this podcast i want to give you the floor where can the people find you plug anything and everything you want right now
1: Amazing. Thank you. Uh, yeah, if you're still listening, first of all, I really appreciate it. If you guys uh, DM me on Instagram, I try to answer as many people as I can. It's at Um And then also I have a podcast that I've been starting and putting out episodes on. It's called The Business Behind, uh, where in every episode I try to cover the business behind a particular industry or sector uh, that we interact with on a daily basis, but we don't necessarily know the Economics and the supply-demand that operate behind it. So, esports, movies, music, uh, TV, healthcare, prison systems. So, um, yeah, the business behind on pretty much every podcast uh, network.
0: Awesome. Well, I want to thank you once again for taking the time to be on this podcast. And I want to thank everybody for listening, whether you've listened the entire way through or you only listen to bits and pieces. I really appreciate taking time to check this out. Everyone do me a big favor. Go and follow Zach. Go subscribe to his new podcast. Make sure you subscribe to Yes Theory as well. If you'd like to follow me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and at the Jacob Kelly. Feel free to come and say hello. My DMs are always open. If you'd like to follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram and at my social life or YouTube by searching up my social life as well. Once again, this podcast is brought to you by True Fan. Thank you once again for listening, everybody. We'll talk soon.